Hello, and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at fintech and the future of money. We'll be asking, what's shopping like when payments become invisible and automatic? People I spoke to said that they can get in and out inside 20 seconds. And when it comes to managing money, how does China provide a glimpse of the future? There's loads and loads of things you can do inside WeChat. You know, you can look for restaurants, that kind of thing. But you can also manage pretty much your entire financial life if you want to. But we'll start with Facebook and its troubled attempt to create a digital currency called Libra, which is supposed to be launched in 2020. Facebook announcing a new digital currency called Libra. and Facebook, Facebook says, says Libra could make it easier to pay for things, as easy as sending a message, in fact. It could also speed up cross-border remittances and, the company says, help the 1.7 billion people who lack access to banking facilities. But since it was first announced in June, Libra has come under fire, and its future, you might say, now hangs in the balance. Chair Powell today addressing Facebook's big cryptocurrency unveil this week. This is lawmakers already pushing back on the tech giant, calling now, for Facebook's Facebook Libra has been making headlines across the mainstream financial press in the last few days, seemingly for all the wrong reasons. Regulators around the world have criticised the plan and say they're unlikely to approve it in its current form. The G7 even said it could pose a threat to the global financial system. Major partners such as MasterCard, Visa and PayPal have recently left the project. Facebook's boss, Mark Zuckerberg, has even been hauled up in front of the US Congress to answer questions about the scheme. I actually don't know if Libra is going to work. But I believe that it's important to try new things. So what does all this tell us about digital currencies? And will 2020 really see the launch of Libra? To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Ludwig Siegler, The Economist's US technology editor. Hello, Ludwig. Hello. So let's start with a bit of detail on what Libra actually is. Is it a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin? I mean, it's a cryptocurrency in so far as it is based on the same type of technology as Bitcoin or a similar type. But it is not because it's a stable coin. And a stable coin means uh, what it says. It's much more stable in value than Bitcoin. You may have heard that Bitcoin kind of fluctuated quite widely and quickly. I mean, it can, can go up and down by $1,000 a day or something like that. And Libra is based on a reserve, on a basket of currency, the dollar, the yen, the euro. And so it's much more stable. It's supposed to be completely stable. So you can actually use it to buy things. And if you have them, you, you don't be, have to be afraid that your Libra lose value overnight. Okay, now another problem that people say with Bitcoin, aside from the fact that its value fluctuates, um, is that it can't actually handle that many transactions. So presumably Libra is built to scale so that it can handle a larger volume of transactions. Exactly. Bitcoin, I think it's like seven transactions per second. And that compares to like several thousand, I think 15,000 for a network like MasterCard. So Libra is, is, is supposed to reach the, the same kind of a similar number of transactions as it has to. Otherwise, people won't use it if they kind of have to wait hours for their transaction to go through, then that is of no value. 
Okay, so it all sounds like it's kind of rectifying the problems that have been associated with Bitcoin going into the mainstream. So what is it that regulators don't like about all of this? I mean, you remember, and we both wrote about it, when Napster came up, I think almost 20 years now, I feel old, and it was hard to use. And then uh, after a while, you got uh, streaming services like Spotify, and it's really, really easy to use. And, and Libra is, is trying to do the same thing for cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is kind of only for the the people who want to go for the trouble of using Bitcoin, it's, it's quite involved in some ways. Also, there's this risk of the volatility we've talked about. Now, if that goes away, a lot of people will use Libra or cryptocurrencies. And that's a kind of scaring regulators. But the big fear is, of course, that cryptocurrencies have always been, not always, but in recent, in recent times, been run by the government. They're one pillar of government's power. And if that is rivaled by a private currency, that, that's, of course, a problem. And that is particularly a problem for the U.S., because for the U.S., controlling the, the, the main reserve currency gives them a lot of power. They can impose sanctions on other countries by limiting the, the access of those countries to the dollar clearing system and all that. OK, so what do you think the prospects are for Libra actually launching in 2020? It looks a lot less likely than it did when it was announced in June, doesn't it? I don't think they'll launch in, in 2020. And, and there's, there's also a question whether it will launch at all, at least in its current form. So what may happen is that Facebook at some point decides, let's forget about kind of the blockchain and that type of currency, just let's create a payment system and just a payment system for our users of uh, Facebook apps. And then that would look a bit like what WeChat does in China. That would be a sort of scaling back of the ambition of Libra. Now, you've written about all of this for our annual, The World in 2020. And in your piece for that, you say that whatever happens with Libra, 2020 will still be quite an important year for crypto coins more widely. Why do you say that? Because I think that the main tension here is between kind of private cryptocurrency and national fiat, kind of that power play or will continue because Facebook is not the, or Libra for that matter, is not the only project out there. So there's Telegram, another messaging product, and they want to launch their own currency, Gram. It has been postponed because the SEC, the regulators here in the US said, you're not allowed, allowed to do this. So I think there will be continuous pressure or people will, always, will, will continue to try to launch a, a global currency. And at some point they may even succeed. I mean, the, the question... <laughs> I ask why Facebook went out kind of all guns blazing, given the trust problems it has and kind of the conflict which was foreseeable, the conflict with with governments. Such a currency might come up in a hidden way. So, it's just, so people start using it and all of a sudden it becomes widespread and then it may, uh, may be too late to, to rein it in. I would say next year we'll see a continued debate on how these type of currencies can be allowed. Okay, and if regulators and governments are worried about these currencies, they're also quite interested in launching them themselves, aren't they? Because at least that way they'd be in control. So the Chinese government, I believe, has a cryptocurrency. The Venezuelan government tried to launch one pegged to oil. Um, do you think we're going to see more action in that area as well? Yes, yeah. definitely. I mean, that's the kind of launcher announcement of the coming launch of Libra has, has done is sped up these plans. So central banks and governments have for some time now thought about launching their own cryptocurrencies, kind of the digital or crypto equivalent of national currencies. And the Libra announcement has certainly sped up those plans and, and, and crystallized thinking. And so, yes, that may also be another outcome is basically that there will be cryptocurrencies, but they will, won't be kind of controlled by something like Facebook or, or another private entity, but by governments. And the worry, of course, here is now that China will be the first to launch a cryptocurrency. 
And that may then become kind of the global cryptocurrency. And that's one of the main arguments Mark Zuckerberg, when you talk to Congress, has put forward is say, okay, be careful here. If you limit us, if you kind of stymie our plans, China may do it and then win and in a somewhat ironical way, create a competition for, for the dollar. Well, this is a controversial area already, and now it's getting embroiled with all these geopolitical power plays. So it's definitely going to be something to watch in 2020. Thanks very much for explaining it all to us, Ludwig. Thanks, Tom. Next, to the busy streets of New York. I'm going to swipe the key to enter. There we go. That's Rosemary Ward, New York correspondent for The Economist, shopping in her local Amazon Go store. So apparently, I, if I just pick one up, I get charged as soon as it leaves the shelf. So let me see. There's some biscuits over here as well. I'm going to grab a biscuit for sure. Um, and it's a bit like a really nice corner shop. A nice cheese. Currently only available in America, these real-world shops run by Amazon are unusual because they have no cashiers. Instead, they use deep learning and computer vision technology to figure out exactly what shoppers have taken off the shelves so they can be charged the right amount automatically as they leave the store. To discuss what this invisible payments technology means for the future of shopping, Rosemary Ward joins us now. Hello, Rosemary. Hello there. So what's the experience of going to one of those shops like? It's probably the smartest corner shop I've ever been to, in every sense of the word smart. It's very snazzy, the decor is very minimalist, but what makes it really smart is the technology behind it. There's no queues and no checkout. So unlike the normal process of going shopping where you choose your stuff and then you go and pay for it one way or another, you literally just walk out? Literally walk out, yeah. There's these sort of gates or turnstiles when you walk in and walk out. So when you walk in, you scan a barcode or as Amazon calls it, your key to get in and the gates swish open. And then the technology behind it is a bit like autonomous cars in that it uses sensors and cameras and deep learning. And those sensors automatically detect when, say, a soup is lifted from a shelf. And it also detects if I put it back, even if I put it back in the wrong spot. And then when you're done shopping, you just walk out the gate. You don't have to scan anything. And that's it. Within minutes, Amazon had charged my account and had, um, I could see the receipt on the app. Okay, did they get everything right? Was it actually corresponding to what you'd taken off the shelves? Absolutely. I was, you know, purposely rearranged things and picked up things and put them back just to see if Amazon was keeping track. And, and they, my bill was perfect. How did you feel this sort of changed the experience of shopping? Did it feel strangely impersonal? Did it feel amazingly efficient? What did you feel about all of this? It was definitely efficient. You know, eight in the morning, you don't necessarily want to talk to anyone. In that sense, it was really great. I was in there for nearly four minutes, and it felt like a long time. Other people I spoke to said that they can get in and out inside 20 seconds. So when you were going around the store, did you feel like you were under sort of mass surveillance with your every move? I mean, was it sort of intimidating with cameras pointing at you from every angle? Well, I didn't notice the cameras. So I didn't feel as if I was under surveillance. So I was aware. I knew I was. I don't think people are, are going to feel self-conscious just because there's a, you know, a thousand cameras on them. 
something we quite often see with technology is you can simplify something so much that it disappears. And this is simplifying the payment process, at least for the customer. It's obviously very complicated for the retailer so that the payment stage just goes away. Do you think that's something we're going to see being rolled out more widely? I think retail's already changing. Amazon's not alone in having no queues and no checkout. Walmart's Sam Club is already starting to roll something similar out, as is 7-Eleven, which both have checkout-free options. And people are less likely to carry cash already. I mean, younger people especially, if you ask them for change for a dollar, they look at you like you're mad. Even buskers have credit card machines now. But what's probably unique about America is we're behind everyone else in terms of this cash-free society. So maybe Amazon is giving everyone else a bit of a kick. I'm always very struck when I'm shopping in in America that I'll use a credit card and in in Europe I can just tap it and that's it. And in America, then I have to wait for bits of paper to come out and then I have to – sometimes I have to enter a number and then I also have to sign it as well. It does seem rather prehistoric. So do you think we might just see America skipping that stage altogether and going straight to these walk-in, walk-out kind of approaches? Certainly, I think in – Some cities like New York, Chicago, Seattle, and San Francisco, we're starting to see that more and more. And it's happening in smaller venues, like this little corner shop. I think it'll be a lot harder for the likes of Target or Stop and Shop to do it. It would involve massive billion-dollar renovations to their space. But I think we're going to start seeing it in smaller outlets for sure. Do you think if it's easier to buy things, people will buy more stuff? Well, I certainly (laughs) got a biscuit when I didn't need to buy a biscuit this morning. Yeah, I think it's very, there's no judgment. No one's looking at you when you're buying. This is what happens with the McDonald's kiosk. So now you can order McDonald's through a kiosk. Apparently, their sales have gone up by five or six percent because people don't feel they're being judged. So they like add more stuff on. (laughs) I'd probably be one of those people too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think people will. And the great thing, at least about Amazon Go, the prices were on par or even lower than some of the neighborhood shops problem, though, is people have a lot of loyalty to their local bodega and bodegas, which is what New Yorkers call their corner shop. And talking to people outside Amazon Go today, some people said they wouldn't go in. They'd rather go to the the local bodega. Thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Let's see. I'm going to walk through the, the gate again. It opened and that's it. All done. And over in the corner before the door... Um, there's a place for napkins and condiments and a bag to put everything in. And finally, if you want to see how technology can change how people handle or don't handle their money, the place to look is China. Joining me to discuss this is Hal Hodson, our Asia technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hello, Tom. Thank you. Now, you do a lot of reporting for us in China. So there's that old William Gibson phrase, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And a lot of people, including our own finance editor, have said, if you want to see the future of payments and the future of finance, then China is the place to go because of the way that mobile payments are so widespread. What does that look like in practice? Well, in practice, I can tell you that uh, from my perspective, it feels like being a second class citizen because I am not able to use these Chinese mobile payment apps. The two big ones, it's basically a duopoly. It's WeChat Pay and Alipay. And it looks like people scanning each other's phones. So use your camera to scan a QR code on one person's screen. And then that sort of creates a connection between your two digital wallets. 
And then you punch in the amount of RMB that you want to send to the person, whether it's a, a friend in exchange for dinner that they bought for everybody or a street vendor selling you a kind of a sausage roll type thing. And then you sort of show them your screen, show that you're done. And, you know, that's the end of the transaction. Okay, but you can't do any of this. So why is that? I can't do any of this. And it is genuinely a bane of my existence. The other night in uh, Guangzhou, I arrived very late and uh, was on my way to my hotel and uh, had been told that I could pay in cash. But when we arrived, uh, the driver insisted upon WeChat Pay. And I ended up at two in the morning having to get a friend in Beijing to make the payment for me. And uh, this kind of thing happens to me all the time. And the reason is that you cannot open one of these digital wallets, WeChat Pay or Alipay, without having a Chinese, mainland Chinese bank account to kind of ground it on. So this ability to send money directly to other people, that must make a big difference as well. Yeah, so probably the most obvious bit of life that this changes is settling the bill. The idea that everyone would pay their own bit of the bill is completely gone. You would never, ever, ever split a bill in China because it's so much more efficient for one person to pay and everybody to immediately pay them back. And there's bill splitting functions just built into the WeChat Pay app. And so, you know, everyone has paid their share within a a few seconds of settling the bill. Excellent. Okay. now, when you've got then an entire generation of people who are used to paying for things in this way, and they're used to basically the smartphone being the way they deal with money, what other services could you then put on top of that? Yeah, so both of these companies, Ant Financial, which runs Alipay, and Tencent, which runs WeChat Pay, both of them now offer sort of your typical financial services. So loans, investments, savings accounts, but they're all the interface through which this happens is all this app. And so, you know, probably some of our listeners will know that there's loads and loads of things you can do inside inside WeChat. You know, you can look for restaurants, that kind of thing. But you can also manage pretty much your entire financial life if you want to. And presumably, if they know a lot about their users' spending habits, they know what a good credit risk they are. They can offer them different rates or they can offer them products that they might need, like mortgages or something. Yeah. And this is specifically interesting, not just in China, but also in India, actually. But it's specifically interesting for small merchants who are typically difficult to extend credit to because, they, you know, they might not have good accounts. They might not have kept good records. But if all of the payments they take are digital and you can see all of those payments, then you know that in the next month, it's very likely that this merchant's going to take in this much cash and therefore they can afford to pay this much loan. So you can, it grounds your models in a financial reality that was much harder to get to before. More broadly speaking than that, the amount of sort of good, clean data that is flowing through these payment systems and these these new banking systems, it makes it a lot easier to build AI and machine learning based tools on top of that data and to kind of deliver financial services far more efficiently than before. The fact that all of your spending is going through this and your bank can tell exactly how much you're spending on coffee each month and things like that, people are starting to kind of raise eyebrows about that in the West. How do people feel about that in China? Do they feel this is sort of financial surveillance? Well, I think for the most part, your average person on the street is just happy to be spending their money buying coffees and don't really think about it too much. But I have met young people who are at least concerned about surveillance. And I've definitely met young people who don't sign up for products that require facial recognition because they don't want their face in a database. But I have not come across concerns about the surveillance of your spending pattern. Well, we started this show talking about Libra. And I think one of the motivations, uh, at least one of the public motivations that Mark Zuckerberg gave was that he thought it ought to be as easy to send money to people as it is to send them a message. But that's already the reality in China, isn't it? 
it's absolutely already the reality in China. If you are able to, if you're able to WeChat the person, you're able to send them money. Unless it's me, you can't send me money. But for <laughs> normal Chinese people, if you can WeChat them, you can send them money. So absolutely, that is that is already there. And the benefits that Zuckerberg talks about with Libra, kind of helping unbanked people to access services and helping rural merchants sell their stuff, those phenomena have absolutely happened in China. You know. The ability for rural people to make a product and sell it on Taobao and get paid over WeChat is much more efficient. There were no other options before. They weren't going to trek into Beijing and set up a stall. It's just too far. They they wouldn't make any money. But the technological shortcut allows them to do that. And so, to some sense, it gives credence to the goals of Libra, even if the means it was using to get there are suspect. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for giving us what is, in effect, a glimpse of the future. It's one of those classic examples of where one part of the world is is doing things that eventually the rest of the world will be able to do, but not just yet. Hal, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you'd like to learn more about all of this, check out our new podcast, Future Watch, which looks behind the scenes of the future, starting with three episodes on the future of money. Search for Futurewatch on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>